You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what that really means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. I just don't routinely cover the basics. We have been going slowly through the Manual of Insight, which is the, the new translation of the Mahasi Sayadaw text on Karnaka Samadhi. <clears throat> Karnaka Samadhi is uh, the Pali word that means momentary concentration insight practice, or what's commonly known in the West as noting practice. Uh, and uh, this is the manual that he wrote <clears throat> about how to do that. And we're in the chapter on the development of mindfulness. And we're talking about uh, the appearance and disappearance of physical phenomenon, or otherwise known as arising and passing. Um, every time one notes physical phenomena, one sees that they are instantaneously appearing and disappearing. For example, when seeing, we see that eye sensitivity and the visu- visible object momentarily appear and disappear. This is the insight knowledge of arising and passing away that realizes the characteristic of arising and the characteristics of disappearance. So you have your five senses plus thinking, and in each of these, uh, when the object touches the capacity to sense, uh, the consciousness of that sensing moment arises, and when the object separates from the capacity to sense, that sensing moment passes away. So that's what we're talking about, the arising and passing. In Vipassana meditation, the exploration is around pulling the sense experience apart uh, so that you can see the individual activity of each sensing sphere and then watching them come together and how that process of coming together creates the sense of the believable world or that mental formation of the world. In pulling that apart and letting it come back together, you can see these uh, basic uh, marks or characteristics of existence. One is not self, one is arising and passing, and one is dukkha. We were, uh, Mike and I were at this uh, event last Sunday where the, the teacher, Dan Brown, translated dukkha not as suffering or unsatisfactoriness, but as reactivity, which I really liked as a, as a way of defining it. That the nature of the sensing experience is to react to uh, sensing objects and the mind can get quite reactive in that way, being bombarded by it. Um, The experience of self arises in a combination of the six senses and passes away. Uh, The phenomena of rising and passing can be explored and it points to the impermanent nature of everything. Um, and then in the reactivity of the, of the unsatisfactoriness of it, we, we live, we all live in bodies that will grow old, get sick and die. We all get what we want and lose it. We all don't get what we want or we all have to put up with things that we don't want. 
And then on the third level, there's that subtle, ongoing, constant irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything. Which is a kind of double-edged sword. One is it's not the way you want it, and two, you're not in charge of anything. A lot of us like to have this idea of we have some kind of control, uh, some solidification, some permanence, which is what the investigation of arising and passing tends to undermine. You, you see that nothing lasts. <clears throat> but we aren't looking for an intellectual understanding, which you could probably grasp in a few minutes, uh, thinking about what, what really does last. Um, but what we want to do is an exhaustive search where we actually earnestly and sincerely explore looking for something that doesn't arise and pass away to the point that we become exhausted by the search and give up on it. <clears throat> if you don't actually do that, then part of you may always be unconvinced about the nature of this. And it's in the convincing of that um, unconscious or um, whole body-mind process that actually provides the, the, the freedom to relax into the understanding that it doesn't last. Otherwise there tends to be a, a grippingness to it or a stickiness to it of wanting something to last. People believe that mental and physical phenomena are good and beautiful. They cannot see that they are unsatisfactory, bad, and unattractive. <laughs> I always love monk speak. <laughs> they do not understand the, that the complete sensation of mental and physical phenomena is peaceful and good. This not knowing is ignorance. <clears throat> because of this ignorance, people are attached to mental and physical phenomena in past lives and committed wholesome or unwholesome deeds in an attempt to make them pleasant. These wholesome and unwholesome actions are karma. Wholesome karma is the cause of this human life. An insight meditator has already accepted the law of karma after having learned that karma brings both mental and physical good or bad results. One also empirically realizes the causes of mental and physical phenomena in their appearance and disappearance while practicing insight. Thus. The meditator's understanding is a combination of empirical and scriptural knowledge. <clears throat> um, I, I often, when I encounter things like this in the text, um, know in my own sense of, of the world, I, I don't necessarily identify strongly with the moral concept of karma. Uh, which is one of the foundations of Buddhism. And I also don't necessarily have much sense of reincarnation. So in, in, in this particular paragraph, um, the description of um, the moral aspect of karma and the uh, uh, nature of uh, karmic traces that last over a period of lifetime lifetimes doesn't actually really resonate with me. I don't have a sense of that. I do know people that do have a sense of that and that, that they actually have an experience that that makes sense to them, but I don't actually have that, so I don't really talk about it in that way. I do uh, understand the cause and effect, that you take an action and it, and it leads to other choices and then you take 
from those other choices, and that if you tend to take a skillful action, the choices are different than if you take an unskillful action, and often the choices uh, that a skillful action leads to are preferable to the, uh, the choices that you get from an unskillful action. <clears throat> but the complexity of what might happen and the predictability based on what you think is a good action is very limited. Um, so we, we talk more about in an overall Buddhist sense of the intention for the action rather than the action itself. Um, could you, for instance, pinpoint in this or any other lifetime the exact moment that you made a choice that led you here tonight. <clears throat> so for me that seems imp improbable. Um, do you know who Raymond Kurzweil is? He's a confabulist and an author. Um, he uh, used as an illustration uh, uh, dropping a, 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 a uh, a, a drop of red dye into a glass of water. He said that if you converted all matter in the known universe into a, a computer, it would take a thousand years of processing to figure out the path of a single molecule uh, of red dye through an inch of water. But that your smartphone could probably trace the path, the computer, the computer capacity of a smartphone could, in retrospect, uh, trace where it had been. And I think that what we often do is create a narrative around the outcomes, um, but that the, the actual outcome of a particular choice that we make until it happens is completely unpredictable. Is that making sense? So that you can intend uh, an action, but uh, uh, we can only be unsure of the outcome until it happens, but then we have a tendency to want to explain the outcome in a way that makes meaning out of it to ourselves. <clears throat> um, is that pretty clear, if that making sense? And so, <clears throat> can you be in the space of not knowing uh, without needing that construction to make yourself feel okay, then that construction in itself is a way of solidifying or, or making permanent or making uh, a meaning that may not actually be there out of the circumstance of your life. Then uh, in, in the sense that Buddhism is then pointing to the uh, understanding that actually these mental constructions aren't real. There is nothing permanent, um, even though we would like to rely on that uh, in some way. One of my favorite illustrations of this is the image of a birdcage falling through space. The door of the birdcage is open. When the bird is inside the cage, everything looks solid and still, and there's no indication that you're actually falling. But if the bird were to fly out of the, of the door of the cage, he would, or she would be able to see that the cage is actually falling and that the illusion of solidity is just that, an illusion. How can you be 
uh, comfortable in the knowingness that nothing will last. That's what this investigation is about. As long as we have the illusion that something might be permanent, that something might last, we might cling to it because it relieves the anxiety of being in a world that's so unpredictable and so unstable and in that way uh, uh, creates a, the possibility of it not being safe or reliable. Is that making sense? Um, so, the, the action of that is then demanding of the world that it be safe and reliable which is to demand something from it which it doesn't provide and so we then need to live in this illusion or this ignorance uh, around that. Whereas this practice would demonstrate by doing it in an earnest and sincere way that actually that isn't what's happening and that um, <clears throat> One of the reassurances that comes from that is that you've gotten this far and the world has been impermanent the entire time that you've traveled along and yet here you are, right? So that the illusion or the ignorance around the permanence of things has not been the thing that has kept you. It has been impermanent the whole time. So it's an adjustment uh, out of that need or that compulsion or that habit to solidify things into this place where you can just be in the terms of life the way that they actually are. And in that not clinging, the, const the constant disappointment that arises out of uh, being checked that it is impermanent doesn't happen. Uh, in some sense that puts you at a, uh, a fork in the road in one direction is nihilism, nothing lasts, so nothing matters, there's no, no reason to do anything. And in the other direction is this full engagement that everything um, passes. <clears throat> so that if you don't engage it now, you never get the opportunity to engage it. So in really going into this understanding of impermanence, you go into an, an engagement, an embracing of the terms of, of life that you live in, whether you embrace them or not. And it has a tendency to push you into engagement and push you into the pursuit of things that have meaning. Um, <clears throat> if we think that things are solid and things will last, then we also think that we can do it later. And we often uh, procrastinate or put off doing the things that have meaning to us to attend to other things. Uh, and so th in this process of really understanding deeply the permanent nature of things, it tends to pull us out of the tendency to do that and to know that if we don't take the possibility of this moment, it will be lost. <clears throat> it's lost either way. Whether you engage it or you don't engage it, it's lost. Uh, but <clears throat> so that the suffering of losing it is not something that's avoidable. But if you withhold yourself from engaging in the moment because you don't want to suffer the loss of it, you don't avoid it. What you avoid is the possible meaning that you would find by engaging in, in the moment. So that this, this is... Um, uh, really uh, 
this particular understanding provides tremendous energy to really engage in what's meaningful in your life because you know that if you don't do that, it's lost and the opportunity to do it later doesn't actually exist. <coughs> Is that making sense? The cosmology of Buddhism <coughs> is oriented around the end of suffering. <coughs> In Theravada Buddhism, which is what this text is related to, it's called Hinayana, or Lesser Vehicle Buddhism. The main emphasis is on the liberation of the self. There's no direction that comes from Mahayana Buddhism, Zen, or Tibetan practice that uh, the Bodhisattva vow, which is to refrain from uh, full enlightenment so that you become, that you're continuously reincarnated until everyone uh, is liberated. And then we sort of all go out together. Um, in Hinayana Buddhism, the, the drive is toward your own liberation and not toward the liberation of all beings. And in uh, traditional Buddhist cosmology, uh, dependent origination is the cause of rebirth in the human realm. And in order to get out of that, that cycle of rebirth or out of suffering, you need to be liberated to the point that you're no longer reincarnated. So again, this drive um, or this basic understanding of, of, of Buddhism doesn't resonate so well with me. Um, and, and really what I look for is a more practical way of practicing so that uh, I'm freed up from the conditioned limitations of this lifetime and free to pursue a, a more meaningful uh, life in, in this lifetime. I think that the experiences that come from practicing for uh, enlightenment <clears throat> is a good thing and that those experiences do actually free you up to pursue the things that actually have meaning to you and aren't uh, meaningful to other people that would direct you to do it for them for some reason or that you are unable to pursue the things that are meaningful because you, uh, you've been conditioned to pursue things of high social value that may not actually be that resonant with you. <clears throat> the physical body has arisen in this life because of ignorance that was present in a past life. It could not have arisen without ignorance. This physical body has arisen in this life because of attachment and craving were present in a past life. It could not have arisen without attachment and craving. This Physical body has arisen in this life because wholesome and unwholesome deeds were performed in a past life. It could not have arisen without wholesome and unwholesome deeds. This physical body has arisen in this life because of nourishment in this life. It could not have arisen without nourishment. So, This real realization is regarded as inferential knowledge of the arising and passing away of phenomenon. One will also realize the immediate cause of physical phenomena in one's present existence, that the physical process of bending the hand is caused by the intention to do so, for example. The bending would not occur without the intention. Also, 
physical sensations of heat or cold are caused by environmental conditions of heat or cold. Physical experience of hot and cold would not occur without those conditions. What's interesting being alive in this time, of course, is that neuroscience is indicating that intention is entirely unconscious. That the conscious experience we have is not the originator of intention, but the unconscious processes. We know the intention, but we know it in retrospect, even though the, the distances are quite short. Consciousness really exists as a place to veto a boneheaded action as it's about to happen. <clears throat> if you're mindful and present, uh, the whole body-mind senses the experience, processes it, identifies it, calculates what kind of response, and then sets the emotion of the response into action, and then sends a bulletin to conscious, the conscious mind you, you really want to do this? And you have that opportunity to stop yourself from doing it. <clears throat> have you ever gotten three words into a sentence which you realized if you completed would be a complete disaster? <laughs> and so you just stop. That's actually the process, which is, I think, slightly different than this description where the intention um, comes from the conscious conscious mind experience it. <clears throat> what I like, or what I think is interesting about that, is that if you step out of the experience of self, and so this is again more of a Mahayana idea than a, a, a Theravada idea or a Hinayana idea. The no-self notion in Hinayana is often described as the eradication of self, or the shutting down of self. <clears throat> Whereas in the other practices, it's more a seeing through the self as insubstantial. So, um, one of the things that's coming out of the neuroscience experience of this time is that those, are t those different ways of practicing affect the, the operation of the brain in very different ways. So the repression or the shutting down completely of self shuts down uh, one area of the brain that doesn't shut down in the practice where you're seeing through the experience of self. So even though you're coming from these two different places, the effect of the practice is different. Um, we, we were with Dan Brown on Sunday and he wrote a book with Ken Wilber about the, the about three main spiritual paths and practices, identifying signposts of practice or signposts in the stages of liberation in the various traditions, which he uh, and uh, Wilbur uh, thought corresponded to each other. But because the nature of the practice was different in each of the traditions, the experience of them was quite different. <clears throat> So one of the things about organizing practice is to identify practices that resonate for you and that, that produce experiences that, that encourage you to continue practicing. <clears throat> I'm a student, a long-time student of Shinzen Young, and he has, in a, a kind of secularized way of practicing, uh, grabbed all of these uh, ideas and put them together in one practice. <clears throat> and so what I notice about it 
in, in dissecting it is that uh, I have never really had a purely Theravada practice because it's been informed by these by Zen and also by uh, the Vajrayana practices, which is an interesting thing. So that uh, the the practice that was is usually described in Theravada Buddhism, uh, the no self experience, which I have had in in practicing machines, and it's not the most common uh, way of practicing. And and in talking to uh, the Mahayana practitioners, the uh, middle path then is not the eradication of the experience of self, but the uh, seeing through the insubstantiality, of, or seeing into the insubstantiality of self. <clears throat> and in the way that Chinzen is uh, taught, I should say, or in the way that I understand, uh, understood the teachings and how it has manifested for me, because he may have been teaching something entirely different, it's just the way that I took it in. Um, the shift has been from identifying with consciousness to identifying with awareness and then distinguishing between ordinary awareness and enlightened awareness Uh, enlightened awareness is then tracking the the, uh, insight that you need for liberation and ordinary awareness is about the conventional experience of reality. It isn't that things aren't solid. Everything in this moment for me looks pretty solid. Everything looks pretty focused. Everything has detail to it. Uh, And I (coughs) am aware that that is a mental formation which I have made out of the sensing experience. Uh, But I know that it can also be distorted depending on my mind state. And that I also know that each of you has made a representation of what's happening here and that it's unique to you. That my uh, representation is not the universal experience and that you're each taking in what I'm saying and it resonates with you and has meaning to you based on your conditioning, not necessarily on what I'm intending uh, to communicate. Uh, is that making sense? And that this is this is true for each person, and this is also also true uh, for all of us in relationship to each other. <clears throat> um, I have done pretty exhaustive searches to find something that's permanent and lasting, and really have been unable to succeed at that. <clears throat> but uh, I think tonight what we'll do is a practice around impermanence and actually looking for seeing if you can actually find something that lasts that's the instruction for the meditation an earnest sincere investigation to see if you can find any experience that is lasting and we'll look at it in a couple of different ways um, I thought that because this can be somewhat uh, disruptive, uh, that we would begin with a little bit of metta practice for self. I, I like to teach a metta vipassana, so you use metta to concentrate the mind and also make the mind kind. And then once you've done that, you move into the uh, insight practices and investigate different things. I will give guidance as we go along. Um, 
which uh, hopefully will be uh, enough. You guys have done see here field. Do you know Shinzen stuff at all? I know I know about him, maybe from you. Okay. But not really. All right. So the see here field technique is a basic technique uh, to divide up the sensing experience. <coughs> In vipassana practice. Um, Empirical knowledge is the direct awareness of the sensing experience and conceptual awareness or is uh, the thing you make it into. So we have sight, uh, sound, taste, smell, and we have the physical sense of the body. And then we have mind, which is the sixth sense. <clears throat> mind typically is the sequencing of individual sensing experiences and also the, the direction that the mind goes in. You'll notice that if you pull apart sensing that you can really focus on only one thing at a time, but there's a process of choice about what you focus on and that's an activity of mind in the sensing sense. In the see here field technique we broadly divide things into visual, auditory, and the felt sense of the body. <coughs> Uh, in a noting practice, you would know what that is, so note it, that is to say, you know what the, the domain of the sensing experience is on those broad divisions, uh, visual, auditory, or the felt sense of the body, um, and then you soak into the experience of the sensing itself. And in this, tonight's meditation, we're then adding an overlay of investigation of looking for a sensing experience which does not end. So we'll begin by doing some metta practice, which is uh, uh, essentially based on phrases um, um, and identifying the mind state of love and kindness. This may be different than a way that you've practiced metta before. We're looking for the physical sensation of a mind state of metta, loving kindness or a kind mind, and then attempting to sustain that mind state. Um, uh, through the repetition of phrases. Um, <clears throat> then, after 10 minutes of doing that, we'll do 10 minutes of just see, hear, feel, and then we'll add into that the investigation of arising and passing. Okay?
anything? <laughs> Sounds upstairs. Didn't we're permanent. My desire to go eat cake at the birthday party lasted <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> I find that with that one, everything gets super slippy, like toward after you've been doing it for a while, um, and a little discombobulating. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean slippery now? Um, there's like a a rush of things that you notice all of a sudden that are disappearing. At least that's my experience. Like, like even just small, not just things like noises or um, like a pain in my shoulder or anything, or a thought, but like little subtle emotional stuff that like comes up and leaves and comes up and leaves. Um, it's interesting actually, I find that it turns more towards the subtle and less towards like the noise upstairs, though it's still there. I actually find that most of the gones end up being more like, like just subtle experiences. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Totally. You have to actually create something out of all of that sensory input in order to know that there's noises of a party upstairs. And as you get more and more concentrated, more and more just in the sensing, that there isn't time for those formations to happen, so they become less and less prominent. Well, several times I felt like I had to make a choice, and so then my thinking was sort of interfering with the practice. I wasn't observing. Mm. I was... Many things came up, and then, but what do I do? <laughs> so. it, in some sense you could actually rely on mind just to pick. Which is what I did. Good. That's, that would be the, the best way to do it. Really, if you it really... It felt forced. It felt awkward. The mind doesn't actually focus on more than one thing at a time. If you have the experience of more than one thing, it's either that the mind is zoomed out and holding a big object, or it's rapidly moving between. So you just get more resolution, you'll, you'll, you'll see. So one way to control that is to zoom in on smaller and smaller objects um, so that, they're, they're, that the field is so narrow that only one thing is able to arise. Because when you zoom out, multiple things can arise at the same time. I find it's very trippy to note gone for like thoughts. Right. <laughs> Because then you're like, oh, now who's noting gone? <laughs> uh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> There's a wonderful Zen practice called Don't Know Practice. Do you know it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you have a thought, you say, the label is Don't Know. We used to do, um, years and years ago, this a woman named Anita's, um, um, hmm. <clears throat> anyway, 
the last name is not arriving, um, <clears throat> in the speech center, she had a pool and we would sit around the pool and do a yaza, which is an all-night sit, noting don't know out loud. So there'd be like 15 people around the pool going, don't know, don't know. It was hilarious. We could do that on the street, Yeah. People have been asking about a yaza. Yeah. A freezing cold yaza yeah, outside. Maybe we'll <laughs> Good. Anyone else? I'm still processing. Hmm? Still processing. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, this is deepening your practice. So, I'm always advocating ways to deepen your practice. One way is retreat. We talked about it earlier. There's a flyer out there for the winter retreat. We do a a winter and a summer retreat in California, and then we do a spring and fall retreat in New York. Um, if you can't come to the winter retreat, the spring retreat is at the Watershed Center, which is a progressive, uh, actually the main business of, we're the only meditation retreat that goes there. Everybody else are, uh, it's a progressive politics retreat center that was founded by the Occupy Wall Street people. We're very happy to go there and offer the, the practice of meditation in the advocacy of progressive ideals. <clears throat> um, another way to intensify your practice would be to, to, to take one of our six-month classes. We have in March, starting, we're starting three classes. One is a level one meaningful life class, which is an informational class and a meditation training around attachment theory. So identifying your attachment and then also learning meditation strategies to work with it. We're also going to be starting a level two class. The level two class is um, uh, working with a meditation mentor. We actually, uh, uh, you'll do a, 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 uh, an interview with a meditation teacher to get a, a more accurate uh, understanding of what your current attachment strategy is. And then we'll work with um, some visualization meditations called uh, Idealized Parent Figure Protocol to move you in the direction of secure functioning in your relationships. <clears throat> uh, next September, we're going to just start a level three, which is uh, actually oriented around doing the deep work of uprooting your, your native attachment and moving it in the direction of secure. But the level two is more around orientating your relationships and uh, secure strategies. We're also going to be doing a meditation interventions for the addiction process class, which is a relapse prevention class. We think that uh, addiction is an attachment disturbance, and so the class is oriented to working toward moving your relationships to a secure attachment structure so that you have support in order to uh, uh, continue your abstinence or harm reduction. Another thing that you should consider is whether or not you have a daily meditation practice, and if you don't have one, we have morning meditation, which is a live conference call every morning at 7.30, Monday through Saturday, where you call in and do 25 minutes of meditation. And there's flyers for all of that out there. Also, um, there's some bracelets out there which we think of as transitionary objects to remind you to be practicing during the day, so feel free to take those. <coughs> the class is offered on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. 
and actually you undertake the generosity practice as a heart opener for yourself. We often get into these constrictions around there not being enough or we can't get what we want and so the practice of generosity is meant to be an antidote to that, to open the heart. Um, the suggested data for this class is $20, um, but if you're very well resourced and $20 doesn't seem generous, you really want to give it a level that seems generous. If $20 is a good amount, give it that amount. If it's too much based on your resources, but give uh, an amount that's appropriate with your resources, but each time you come do consider giving something to support this. And then at the same time know that if you're not resourced, that we as a community are happy to support this so that you have a place to come and practice. If you'd also put your chairs and blankets away, that's appreciated. And we will see you next time. We're going to be here on the 14th and the 21st, and then we'll be off for a couple of weeks because I'm going to go on retreat. Thanks. <laughs>